today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Andrew, there you go. Great to hear from you. Hope you're doing well. Uh, Andrew celebrating his birthday on Sunday. And listen to this. And I haven't talked about this yet, but obviously with the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign and all that, <laughs> uh, it's online. It's virtual. So uh, and what Andrew's uh, done is anybody who is uh, what Andrew's done for Christmas or for uh, birthday gifts is he's told people to make a donation or he's collecting money for the CHML Christmas Tree of Hope campaign. And he's already got 150 bucks. So there you go. Don't forget 900CHML.com. You want to find out more information on the CHML Christmas Tree of Cope, uh, Hope campaign and how it will all operate during a year of COVID-19. And we thank you, Andrew, for uh, thinking about us, uh, especially in your birthday. And we hope that you have a good one. There it is. That's not a, that's not a golf clap. That's a massive stadium clap there for you. All right, let's move on. Uh, let's bring in Elliot Tepper, uh, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. I want to continue talking about what we were talking about last segment, and that is the transition. Will we see something this weekend? Obviously, as our last guest uh, said, you know, ob- these results won't be finalized until December. Uh, that being said, uh, usually there's a concession of some time, of some sort that allows things to get going and there's, you know, so it's hopefully a seamless transition. Obviously, that is not happening, uh, with the president. Uh, however, uh, today, uh, Arizona finally, uh, finalizing their count and saying, uh, that the, uh, race in Arizona has officially been called in Biden's favor. Uh, China also, uh, congratulating Biden on his uh, victory. I believe it is only Russia and Mexico that have yet still to uh, acknowledge uh, the new presidency. Let's bring in Elliot. As I mentioned, Carleton University, Elliot Tepper is with us now. Elliot, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Uh, thank you. And uh, to, to, you as, uh, to you and everybody else who's listening. So obviously, um, uh, before we get to uh, what is happening with China and such, uh, just your thoughts on where we are now. Uh, obviously, there won't be a final vote count till the very end, and, and everybody gets their stuff in by December. Uh, that being said, with Arizona uh, now being announced in Biden's favor, uh, are you expecting any sort of change in the narrative over the weekend at all? Only, not over the weekend. Uh, until the key word here is certification. And each state, 50 states, has to cert- each one certifies under their own rules uh, what the election result is. And then we have on December 8th the, the last call, really, for the Electoral College to be declared by each state. And then on the 14th of December, finally, the Electoral College results have to be announced or should be announced. We'll have to see what happens. But unless Georgia is called definitively, then Donald Trump still has a faint hope, you know, a long shot chance of uh, having Pennsylvania end up being sent to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court handing him the victory that he has not clearly uh, received at, at the ballot box. So it really comes down to whether there's enough Electoral College votes without Pennsylvania so there's no hope, so there's no pathway to the Supreme Court, or if Pennsylvania... Uh, has such a wide margin that the Supreme Court wouldn't bother taking a look at it. But the election isn't truly over, and that might help explain, which is what I think you wanted to talk about, why China has been very slow compared to other states in recognizing the electoral victory, which, you know, last Saturday was called by the networks. You bring up a valid point here, Elliot, because you said slow. I would think China, Communist Party uh, of China, they're not real quick to do this anyway. But you, even in normal uh, in normal situations, they're late to the table. Is that your point? Well, the, the point is that the 
<laughs> the presidency of the United States has not been really settled in the minds yeah. of uh, the the president of the United States, and therefore to the outside world to some degree. So you can say that they're they were just being cautious, uh, Scott, because Donald Trump did not concede. Without a concession, there's no real clear uh, winner, despite what the networks can call, until such time it's, it's declared on uh, when the Electoral College meets. Which technically, finally, will only be January 6th when the results of the Electoral College are reported to Congress, joint session of Congress so validates it. So uh, you could say that they were simply being cautious in the absence of a concession speech. Uh, they did not want to interfere in what they see as an undecided election. But I think in a way that's also just being generous to them. Uh, what about uh, Russia and Mexico, the last two? Again, Ru Russia, you don't expect anything there. You think something similar then to China. But Mexico, what does that say, that they are not willing to say something at this point? Well, let's uh, it out rather than particularize it. Uh, there's there's uh, been one narrative in all of this, is that we've had for some time now the spreading wave of populism overturning the normal norms of uh, democratic states and their elections. We saw that most prominently with Brexit immediately preceding the U.S. election, bringing Donald Trump. But all across Europe, uh, there's been a surge of populism, populist uh, governments coming to power, uh, saying the elites have betrayed us. And, you know, so we had the strange situation in Mexico, in this case, of a populist leader who um, was on the far left and you would think would be automatically... Uh, given how Donald Trump has treated Mexico, a, a, a bad, uh, a bad, uh, uh, a polar opposite of Donald Trump. But in fact, they got along rather well, and we ended up with revived uh, new NAFTA as a result. And perhaps we can only speculate that he's reluctant to go ahead and recognize Biden because it's a recognition of the return to, it's a recognition of the pushback against populism, which is his own raison d'etre. But that's all speculation. So we remember when the president took office, he seemed to irritate our allies and make friends with uh, our traditional enemies. Uh, we certainly know the divisiveness, the rise in populism you're talking about uh, over the last few years and such. Now that Biden uh, looks like or will be installed eventually, and he has already the support of these allies, how does this change the world order from the Trump days? Or will we now see a reunification of our allies? Well, this is a big question. Uh, I think that one of the central issues facing America today is what a colleague and I earlier called the deconstruction of trust under the Trump administration. That is, he deliberately fostered a lack of trust, taking away of trust and everything domestic, the media, since we're talking in the media, but to the institutions of democracy more broadly, and uh, abroad, the deconstruction of trust between America and its allies, and a core um, central pursuit, and all just signaled in part by the election of, of Biden, is the reconstruction of trust as the mandate of a Biden administration. Whether he can do it easily or quickly is another matter. Um, you were asked me to comment a bit about China. The Chinese situation is that um, they have, they have a, a choice to make. We've given them the benefit of the doubt for the moment that they were just being bureaucratic and hesitating. But there's also a chance that they really regret the loss of Donald Trump, despite the apparent bellicosity. Um, 
this was a gift that kept on giving for the autocrats of the world, including Xi Jinping, who falls into that category by most definitions, because Donald Trump's um, behavior in terms of weakening alliances, saying America does not want to lead, we do not want to be the policemen of the world. So the abdication of leadership, global leadership, hmm. by America under Donald Trump is just a gift to all others who want to fill that vacuum, most uh, prominently China and Russia. And uh, now we have Joe Biden coming in saying that one of the very first things I'm going to do in terms of overseas matters is basically to restore the faith, faith in multilateralism, and we're going to rally democracies. And he's just said, um, you know, we only represent 25% of the global economy, the U.S., that's a lot, actually, but we need the other 40, another 40%, uh, the democratic nations of the world, and he's calling for a, a summit of democracy in the near future. So he is trying to restore multilateralism as a combined approach, a unified approach against the kinds of behavior that uh, the U.S. doesn't approve of regarding China, Russia, and other, other uh, competitors against a democracy. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We've certainly seen how China has taken advantage of that opportunity and and, and advantage and challenged Donald Trump and democracy and such. So now that they see this happening, do they change their tune? Do they readjust? Do they keep going on the same uh, with the same momentum that they've always had? Or do they realize that window has closed and it's not going to get any better for them, especially with the world? and what the world thinks of, of China right now, especially in the wake of, of this pandemic. Is this an opportunity for them to change their tune, and is that likely? There might be a change of tactics, but not of strategic goals. The, um, I mentioned this was a gift that kept on giving. Donald Trump pulled out of the TPP, the Trans-Pacific Partnership, a trade relationship, mm-hmm. which was, if you looked at their webpage at the time, under Obama, Obama-Biden administration, was overtly meant to, to be a notice that uh, the states, particularly surrounding China, the smaller states surrounding China, would have an ally. There would be a unified front against Chinese expansionism in the, in the realm of trade. Uh, and now the, the Japanese have kept that going, and we're there. So when I, one, one thing that Canada can do is be a champion along with Donald Trump, uh, as an antithesis to Donald Trump's approach, a champion of multilateralism along with Biden. And as part of that, it would be great if uh, Canada, uh, which we became after fumbling a bit, uh, one of the original six um, validators of the new Trans-Pacific Partnership, we should be, we should be trying to get the U.S. back in. Uh, just at, there's a number of things that Canada can now do if we so choose uh, to take advantage of the fact that we have a believer in the White House in multilateralism seeking partnerships around the world for the kind of uh, rules-based order that Canada requires uh, in order to thrive. On that note, where does this leave uh, the two Michaels, the case against the Huawei CFO, even what's going on in Hong Kong? Yes, actually, I was leading up precisely to that. Good. <laughs> Thank you, Scott, for picking up on it. The you know We've just passed the 700th day yeah. in incarceration. Uh, of our two Michaels, the uh, the possibility exists that our efforts so far have been on a multilateral front, and we've gotten a lot of support uh, from the EU and other states, occasionally from the U.S., but a much stronger center of multilateralism 
uh, standing for democracy and Canada as being part of that, is, is a much greater, uh, a more amplified voice in, in unity saying to China, look, if you want to be part of the global community, this isn't how you behave, and our people might benefit. And also, while we're on the subject of uh, the two Michaels, this is a bit complicated, but remember that the reason they were picked up, and coercive diplomacy is the term our prime minister has used correctly, is because we arrested Meng Wanzhou as mm. part of an extradition request by the U.S., which was in turn related to the Iranian policy of America. Uh, and uh, we accused the Huawei company of violating, we meaning the U.S., accused uh, the um, the Huawei company of violating American sanctions. Uh, that's what they said. And, you know, one possibility is is that Donald Trump, having pulled out of the Iran nuclear deal and Joe Biden may be possibly trying to renegotiate an arrangement with Iran to get them back into uh, being... Uh, not on a path to being a nuclear power, but also adding to it not being a malign influence around the region, perhaps, who knows, that could lead to the removal of the U.S. request for extradition from Meng mm. Wanzhou, which would open up the possibility of springing our people, the two Michaels, in China. Well, did you, well would you not think that Biden would uh, face the same sort of scrutiny for doing that as anybody would, as even a Donald Trump would, if he backed down on that now? Back down on? On the, Hmong, uh, on the Huawei CFO case and the issue in regard to well, Iran. Since, since it's related to sanctions against Iran for violations, yeah. which the um, after the withdrawal by the Trump administration, if there's going to be a revised... By, this is a long shot, but uh, yeah. you, have to, you have to hope for these people who are right. in jail. Remember, we have Hussein Shalil there. We, we, there's others. And that yeah. takes us to the Uyghurs, and that takes us to Hong Kong. So the behavior of the Chinese government is, uh, is really what we're talking about. Huawei is clearly a champion of a kind of a mercantilist, old-fashioned, we'll, we'll use private companies to expand their interest abroad. So if the particular case that washed up on us is related to the U.S. and Iranian sanctions, and the U.S. changes its policy on Iran as part of a negotiation, then maybe they would, as part of that, withdraw their, their request that we extradite her. And that's not a China-related issue, but it does release us from a China concern. As I say, this is a, a roundabout, yeah. and, and you know, it, it's, it's perhaps a long shot, but it's something to keep in mind as our people are sitting in jail. Back to China... Uh, what's going to happen there? We have Tony Blinken, who's the chief for, uh, course, uh, who's the chief advisor on foreign policy. And remember, Joe Biden has extensive foreign policy experience himself. No. I mean, he's he's gone to China. He knows Xi Jinping. He knows everybody, but he knows Xi Jinping. They've they've uh, had long conversations. They they shot hoops together at an earlier stage. Uh, but uh, Tony Blinken has said, you know. When it comes to China, and this, and he may well be a senior official inside the Biden administration, when it comes to China, we are competitors, but we are adversaries and we are partners. So basically saying that there has to be a more nuanced set of relationships with China, but China has to be put on notice that we are not going to, uh, we are not going to accept, as has happened in the past, the theft of intellectual property, the cyber intrusions, 
and other other behavior. And then you get into Hong Kong, and and uh, the U.S. under Biden is not not likely to go any. Uh, he's more likely to include issues of human rights and human rights violations in the bilateral discussions with China, which would include the Uyghurs as well as Hong Kong, than Donald Trump was. So we're into a very a different and new relationship with China, perhaps under Biden. But if your question, will that alter the behavior of China? Will Xi Jinping change? He may indeed have to change his tactics in dealing with a new Biden administration. But the long-range goal to become the central power in the world by 2050, I think, will remain. Hmm. Uh, last question here. As we see the Trump era come to an end, will we see more politicians like him or less? Uh, I don't think we'll see more like him. Uh, he has a unique appeal. Um, remember, 70 million people voted for him in the election, which he apparently has lost, and we'll have yeah. to assume that that will be called. So he drew upon a long set of um, Republican priorities over decades of, of demonizing socialism. Uh, certainly racism was a latent dog whistle uh, campaign. You, you can go back to the Willie Horton ads and so forth. So he, they set the table. They didn't expect him to take the big chair. But he then added all kinds of elements of his own. And I think it'll be hard to duplicate. But remember, he may be gone, but uh, may be gone. But he still has absolute command over that party base. And we don't know what his intentions are for the future. Could you see him running again? I mean, and especially in a role less than the president? We don't know his intentions, keeping in mind, I think you and I have discussed, he also has a number of legal cases pending against him, which may have a higher priority uh, than anything else. So how he chooses to handle uh, his personal fate uh, today and going forward is really the calculation in the minds of a Donald Trump, which is a very um, special space, which nobody's quite figured out yet. <laughs> I wondered how you were going to, what word you were going to use there, Elliot. Uh, Elliot Tepper has been with us, Emeritus Professor of Political Science, Carleton University. Always fun, Elliot. Thanks so much for the time. Be well. And to you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.